Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church on this Sunday morning. Let's begin by uh, having a prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your good gifts. We thank you, Father, that you have redeemed us through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've uh, gathered us together this morning to hear from your word, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We pray, Father, this morning for any saint who is in difficulty. We pray for also, Father, for the gospel to spread. And we just pray that you would have the Holy Spirit convict the minds of unbelievers to be ready to hear the truth that sets them free. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, just a couple of announcements before we get started with the message. First of all, um, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of service today. Secondly, uh, just as a reminder, we will be uh, off break summer vacation from August 22nd to the 30th. There will be no services Thursday evening, August 25th or Sunday morning, August 28th. No services at those two times. Again, this morning, please keep our missionaries in prayer as well as congregations overseas that are uh, facing persecution. Also this morning, I'll ask special prayers for a man by the name of Nicholas. He's an evangelist in Nigeria. He's a good friend of Pastor Kingsley. Um, he preaches the gospel. He preaches the grace of God, and he suffered a lot for that. So please keep him and his family in prayer as well. All right. Today's message, the title is, let us go to Judea again. Let us go to Judea again. It's spoken by our Lord. Please turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, starting in verse 1. John, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the same Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. <clears throat> so the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister. And Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Verse four of chapter 11, I turn your attention to that, that verse again. This is the keynote for the whole narrative that John gives here in chapter 11 concerning the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for four days. And, it go, and the passage says this, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. 
So when we come across in this chapter the issue of Lazarus's sickness and his death, okay, we should always recall recall this passage and understand that that it all leads to there's a purpose, there's an end result. That's the glory of God. That that even though things are are look terrible in terms of Lazarus and his sisters, in the end it will it will turn to it will all turn around and it will all give glory to God and also this time to his son the Lord Jesus Christ so again in verse 4 which we just read again Jesus provides the key that explains everything about this chapter if we recall these words at various points in time as we're going through the narrative we won't stumble on anything that Jesus says the disciples didn't do that And as a result, they did end up stumbling over other things that Jesus said. Now, here in verse four, these words also apply to what awaits the Lord Jesus Christ on the other side of the horizon. He's going to go to Judea again. He's going to perform the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. It's going to create a great stir. And he is then going to leave Bethany and move north for a while, and then he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to head over the horizon to Jerusalem once again. There, however, he will meet with the wrath of the Sanhedrin, who will put him on trial and then put him, have him put to death by the Romans. And so the words that Jesus speaks in verse 4 are sort of a precursor, a, a, a looking forward in a second way to what's going to happen to him. When Jesus heard this, He said, this sickness of Lazarus is not going to end in death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified by it. In the same way, the passion of Christ will not end in death, because he also will be raised from the dead. And that death and resurrection will again give glory to his Father, maximum glory. It will also be the crowning moment of the Lord Jesus Christ's own glory here on earth. All right, this morning, let's now begin in verse 5 to pick up the narrative where we left off last Sunday. Verse 5, chapter 11. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's entirely appropriate to see this verse as a parenthesis. Why do I say that? Because otherwise, if you read this, um, let me read verses 4, 5, and 6 again. I want you to see if there's kind of like a disconnect when we hear verse five and then move on to verse six. Notice. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God might be glorified by it. (laughs) Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, If you were to look at this just from an everyday human point of view, and we see Lazarus is sick, Jesus knows it, and then there's an expression by John, and he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, humanly speaking, what would that have led to? Forgetting the part about glorifying God, just he loved these people. He's sick. What? Huh? He would grieve, but wouldn't he also take off right away? Right. That would have said seems from our human perspective to be an expression of the love he had for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. But he doesn't do that. 
Instead, he what? He stays two days longer where he is. So can you see the disconnect from a human point of view here? It's like that's not what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to head right down, up, as we'll see. That's what Martha and Mary expected. Okay, I'm sure when they when they received back the messenger, and they heard that that Jesus said he's that he's this sickness is not going to end in death. They were excited. Oh, good, he's going to recover because Jesus is coming. But Jesus didn't come. But if you think about verse five as a parenthesis, okay, then it all makes sense again. Now, let me go back and read verse four again. And this time I'm going to skip verse five. So don't read it. I'm just going to read verse four. I'm going to skip verse five because it's in parentheses and then continue with verse six. See if this doesn't make more sense. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You see it? Now it makes sense. Once you fit, once you understand that the narrative talks about Jesus' words having to do at the end of verse four with glorifying God, and then then you say to yourself, "Well, I don't see yet." If you're reading this for the first time, exactly how he's going to glorify God, but now I see that his staying two days, while it doesn't make sense humanly speaking, apparently makes a lot of sense in terms of glorifying God, and so it connects verse four and verse six. Verse five in parentheses, Jesus stayed for two more days in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where he had retreated. Remember, at the end of chapter 10, he stays there two more days after he hears the bad news that Lazarus is sick, because ultimately that will be the thing that will glorify God, the father and in turn glorify Jesus himself. You see, he did love the family. Verse five is true. Right. Verse five is true. He did very much love Martha and her sister and Lazarus. However, he loved his father more and his love for his father took precedence even over his love for his dearest friends. Remember, we saw when we ended last week that this is really all about love. It's going to be about and Jesus love. It's going to be about Jesus love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus, to be sure. It's also going to be about Jesus' love for his disciples and ultimately his love for God the Father, which is the most profound love of all, which took precedence over the love, the real love and friendship that the Lord had for these people. Well, it's going to turn out that once you, once he, when he does, as he always does, orients to God the Father, it turns out that that also will result in the greatest possible benefit to the others, to the disciples and Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so that so that ultimately, if you take that parenthesis, there's love for Martha, Mary and Lazarus. And then you allow the plan of God to play out. And and, and then we'll see that that you bring that love with you. But it's, it's a subtext down to the main story, which is Jesus is coming. He's dead four days. He's going to raise him from the dead. That's glory to the father. And then when you plug the love back in of the people, now you see that he actually held back because because he loved them so much, because of the things that are going to come out of this incredible miracle were ultimately blessed the disciples and Martha and Mary and Lazarus and everybody else far more than if he had gone when he was sick and healed him then. Either way, Mary and Martha get Lazarus back, right? In the end, in the end, it all works out. 
But not only is he, is, he allow, is he allowed to express the love for Martha and Mary in bringing Lazarus back, but he also stays true to the plan of his father. And that glorifies him and his father. It also produces the best possible outcome for the disciples, for Martha, for Mary, for everybody who was there at the tomb as well. Ultimately, it, what, will, what it will not be, humanly speaking, the best outcome for is for Jesus. Because in so doing this, in his, in, in, as a result of his love, both for, uh, for his father and for Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he will put himself in great danger. Great danger. So, so that's sort of the, that's the big picture. We get that out of understanding that verse five in, in, in the immediate passage is a parenthesis that we'll come back to later. So again, he, he, would, he would glorify his father. He says again, verse four, key verse, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. How did Jesus glorify his father? Well, as always, it was to, to, it, to obey his will, right? That's what gives glory to God the father. What that meant was that the father, at this point, when Jesus has spoken these words, that the sickness will not end in death, but for the glory of God, God's will at that moment was for him to wait, to wait those two days. Then it would be time for him to go in the Father's plan, and then he would go. See, that's obedience to the Father. That took precedence over everything. And as we as we will see, he glorified his Father by using his power, God's power, to raise Lazarus from the dead. In other words, this delay that turned sickness into death turned into an opportunity to demonstrate the power of God. And again, the key to the, the key verse, verse four: this sickness is not to end. In death, it will pass through it, but for the glory of God, that's the end game, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it, by allowing things to play out, by allowing the days to pass, so that not only Lazarus would die, but he'd be dead for four days. That allowed an opportunity there, for when the timing was right, for Jesus to come to Bethany of Judea, perform the most amazing miracle, give, give the glory to God the Father, far beyond what he would have been doing with his power if he had just brought Lazarus back from sickness. Bringing him back from being dead for four days is an incredible miracle, unprecedented, maximizes the glory of God the Father, demonstrates the power of God, also glorifies Jesus Christ as the one through whom the Father works out this amazing power and miracle. And again, at that point, what was the parentheses here in verse 5, the love that he showed for Martha and Mary would be not only in giving Lazarus back to them, as we would have expected, but something far greater, more profound. And what was that? What will that be? Letting them, too, see the glory of God at work in him. That was that was also an expression of his love for them, to allow them to be there, to see this, and so to minister to their souls and, and develop their faith and trust and awe of who Jesus is. So that outcome was not only, again, Lazarus being brought back to them, but having this ability to see an, an incredible demonstration of the power of God, the glory of God at work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the parentheses comes back and plugs into the narrative at the most critical point. I'd like you to see that. Please turn to John chapter 11, verse 35. 
John chapter 11, verse 35. John talks about Jesus' love for Martha and Mary as an aside in verse 5, but then he brings it back front and center at the moment when the Lord Jesus Christ is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Look at chapter 11, verse 35, 35. Jesus wept. Remember, I first asked this morning the reaction that you would be expecting of grief. Well, here it is, right? Here it is when he's with them. When he's at the tomb, and he, he realizes the overwhelming sadness that was in the hearts of Martha and Mary and him, humanly speaking. He loved Lazarus. Lazarus had died. So the Jews were saying, notice, see how he loved him. There's that love coming. And then we have verse 7, as we have every time when we see Jesus performing miracles, glorifying the Father, there's always some that are going to be the naysayers, the critics, the unbelievers. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? What an incredible thing to think about. You see it now, right, the critics, the haters, now they're willing to acknowledge the fact that he opened the eyes of a blind man. Remember back in chapter 9, they wanted no part of that. But now, right, in the face of what looked to be an error, a mistake, a failure by the Lord, they're more than willing to now acknowledge that he that he healed and brought the sight to the man who was born blind. Haven't, couldn't he also have kept this man also from dying? Verse 38. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, that's love for his friends, love that he had with Lazarus, with Martha, with Mary, deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave. And a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And notice what Jesus says to her right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? When we believe and we take God at his word, then we see the glory in a situation. Now, let me just point out, the glory's there, whether we see it or not, right? But when we believe with those eyes of faith, we see it. We participate in it. That's what he's saying to Mark. You see, I held back from coming because I'm going to give you a demonstration of who I am. And by believing that I am, as he's, as he's going to say, the resurrection and the life, now you come in and participate in, and you see before your very eyes the expression of who he is. So that's what this is all about. The key, this is sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And oh, I have a slide with that on there. You think maybe I wanted you to focus on this, orient, hear it a few times, see it, so that you keep this in mind as we travel through the rest of chapter 11? Yes, I do. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And again, as I mentioned already this morning, this statement has in it the seed of the ultimate sickness in the sense of the passion of Christ, his being beaten, his, his, his body being destroyed on the cross, dying. But that didn't end in his death because the glory of God would also be right there at the cross with Jesus. Jesus expressing 
his love for the Father, expressing that God is a God of righteousness and justice. All of that came to a climax at the cross, glorified God the Father, glorified the Son in it too, in his, his obedience, and in so doing, turning him, well, expressing, showing that he's the Savior of the world, and then the resurrection, of course, as well. Let's continue now in verse 7 of chapter 11. Go back now earlier in the chapter to our passage this morning, verse verse 7 of chapter 11. So again, in verse 6, he says, John narrates that Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick. Now he's going to stay two days longer in the place where he was. Now in verse 7, he's now going to turn to his disciples and he's going to say something to them and they're going to react to it. They're going to react to it basically because they didn't take the key to this chapter and believe it and accept it and and see everything that was going to unfold in terms of the fact that whatever happens, this is going to end with the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And Jesus said, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples react. They said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Now, it is true. I mean, we've seen the Jews several times already to the point where they were ready to stone him, to kill him. Always because he was declaring who he was. He was declaring that he's the son of God. He's declaring that the God, the father is working and so is he. And every time when he made a statement that he was the son of God, they wanted to kill him. That had happened three times. But also every time they didn't succeed. And every time John points out because his hour had not yet come. Now, the disciples should have understood this by now. They should have understood that Jesus is walking in the plan of his father. And, and, and he's not going to be killed until the time is right for that to happen in the father's plan. And when that happens, then God will be glorified by it. You see, if they were really if they were really sold out and, and, and understood Jesus goal, Jesus objective, and they bought into it, then they would have no worries at this point about him going back to Judea. OK, if it's not the father's time, it doesn't matter how hateful doesn't matter how many people run to the Pharisees, run to the chief priests and tell them Jesus is doing this again. doesn't matter because nothing's going to happen until God the Father ordains it to happen. But they didn't have that level of, of faith in, in God, really. OK, so they were still reacting, humanly speaking. Verse eight, the disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Now, make no mistake, they were not simply concerned with the welfare of Jesus. They were also concerned with somebody else's welfare. Their own, right, right. They understood that if they came with him, he was, they were his closest followers, that they were putting their own life in danger. Okay. Jesus answers. Now, it's an interesting, interesting answer that he gives right now. I mean, you might expect him to say, like he said one time to Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? God's ways are not your ways. Or I have to go. It's the plan of my father. 
or nobody's going to touch me this time because it's because God, the Father, says that no one's going to kill him until the exact moment, the Passover. But he says something different. And this is going to be something that's going to open up a whole world for our understanding of, of how Jesus is, is bringing his disciples along, bringing us along in the imagery that he uses and brings out. Look at verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Now, do you think a, a six-year-old kid, not a believer, if he hears these words, do you think he can make sense out of them? Right? It's 12 hours in the day. If you walk in the day, you're not going to stumble because you can see where you're going. Fair enough. Pretty, pretty obvious. But look at verse 10. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not. What's that next word? In him. Now that a six-year-old wouldn't understand. I mean, up to the point where you say you walk at night and you stumble. By the way, they didn't have street lights in the time that Jesus lived. So it was dark, right? And so you would understand that, yeah, you could stumble. By the way, we're about to look at the actual road that Jesus and his disciples would, would be taking to go from Bethany beyond the Jordan to Bethany of Judea, near Jerusalem. And the one thing you don't want to do on that road is stumble. We're going to see that very vividly this morning. So the disciples were upset, very upset, because they were certain that Jesus would be killed as soon as he stepped foot in Judea again, because they were looking at things from an earthly perspective, from a perspective of human anxiety and fear and being intimidated by the leadership, by their anger, by their hate for Jesus Christ, by their power, by their situ- by their, um, their authority and so forth. That became more important or at least more concrete to them than God the Father's plan. They, they were upset because he wanted to go back to Judea. They, he had just almost been stoned and they, they thought he was out of his mind, you know. They said they thought they didn't say this, but they they must have thought that's a suicidal thing to do to go back now. They were certain that Jesus would be killed as soon as he stepped foot in Judea again. Let us go to Judea again. Now, this morning, we're going to take a look at the geography behind what's happening here. We've seen that. We've already looked at some maps. We've seen basically where Bethany beyond the Jordan was, where John was first baptizing. We saw how that was east of Jerusalem, crossing the Jordan River. Now he's saying we're going back to Judea. Okay, you're actually going to go to Bethany. Bethany, remember last week we saw it's close to Jerusalem. So it's going to be a journey. And it turns out that the geography of that journey is really significant. And it really adds depth and understanding and real re- reality to this statement he's making about the light of the day and the stumbling at night. We're going to take a trip down the road that Jesus and the disciples would have traveled that led from Bethany beyond the Jordan to Bethany in Judea, two miles from Jerusalem. And in Jesus' day, there was one and only one road that you had to take 
if you were traveling from Bethany beyond the Jordan to Bethany in Judea. Here's a map. All right, I'm not going to draw this morning. You can see it. Well, maybe I'll just use a, a little bit here. Why not? Okay, I'm just going to circle. All right, uh, can you even see that? Yeah, Bethany beyond the Jordan. That's where Jesus is now, as chapter 11 starts. That's where he was taking, he was resting. He was taking a break from all the goings on in and around Jerusalem. That's where he is. Now, here's where Martha and Mary and Lazarus in the grave are, Bethany of Judea. And so you can see, if you, 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 should, you can notice here that there's a road. By the way, the lines here are the roads in ancient um, Palestine, okay, that people could take. And you can see that there was really just one road that they could take to go from Bethany beyond the Jordan to Bethany in Judea. Just one. It was a Roman road built by the Romans. And it was uh, the road that went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. From Jerusalem to Jericho. Let's look at the map again. Map again. You can see along the road from Bethany beyond the Jordan to, to Jerusalem was Jericho. And Jericho is mentioned in in the Bible in the New Testament, in the Old Testament as well. And Jesus talked about this Bethany, I mean, this Jericho, this road from Jerusalem down to Jericho in one of his best known parables. I'd like you to turn now to Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus is talking about the fact that there's 12 hours in a day of daylight. And if you walk during those 12 hours, you'll see where you're going. You won't stumble. But at nighttime, when you can't see where you're going, you will stumble. He says at the end, because the light is not in him, that one word in is going to open this thing way up to see the metaphorical use of light and daylight and night. Okay, because Jesus isn't just talking about the sunrise and the sunset. He's talking about other principles, spiritual principles, how how the plan of God is at work in what he's calling these 12 hours, as well as in the night that follows. We're going to see how that relates to his unfinished work. We're going to see how it relates to the amount of time that that the nation of Israel had to to welcome him as their savior. We're going to also see it, it represents the amount of time or that opportunity for each and every human being to believe in Jesus Christ. So there's a lot more here than just 12 hours that seeing the, the sun go from one end of the sky to another. But he starts there and he's not only that, but because of where he was, just where he was and the road that they would need to take in order to get to that destination also speaks volumes and adds a lot of depth and reality to what he's saying to his disciples. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw the man bleeding, 
beaten, left for dead. He passed by on the other side, walked away. But a Samaritan, the ones that were hated by the Jews, the Samaritan like the Samaritan woman who was at the well, a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. Now, not only is this the road of the parable here, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's also the road that Jesus took when he made his final journey to Jerusalem. We're going to see that final journey to Jerusalem in chapter 12 of this gospel. It's also recorded by the other three gospel writers. And so this same road from Jericho to Jerusalem was the road that Jesus walked on as he was making his final approach to the city of Jerusalem, where he would be captured and tried and put on a cross. Not only that, but during that same trip, the last time Jesus would come to Jerusalem along the way, really right outside the the city of um, Jericho. That's where he healed the blind man Bartimaeus. Okay, that, we're not going to go there, but that's in Mark chapter 10, verse 46 to 52. Also, on that same journey, as he's, as he's beginning on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, Jesus also saved a short, rich man in a sycamore tree. You know, he is a tax man named Lazarus. I mean, named Zacchaeus. Right? That was all during his last trip down this, up this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. When he was going there to die, he also saw the man, saw Zacchaeus, a man small of stature, short, okay, rich, tax man because he ripped off people. He, but he wanted to climb up to see Jesus to get a better look at him because he was so short. And just that gesture of him expressing the fact that he wanted to see Jesus gave Jesus the opening to invite, ask him to be invited to lunch changed everything about the life of Zacchaeus. Well, that also happened on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem on the last trip that Jesus would take. But as we've seen in the in the story we just read, the parable that Jesus gave about the Good Samaritan and the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was dangerous. There was a road that was frequented by soldiers. There was a fortress along the way. It was also, as we've seen in the story of the parable, Lots of thieves around, robbers, questionable individuals. We're going to see why they could hide out and wait in a place like that in just a minute. Now, that same danger, therefore, lurks right below the surface of the words Jesus has said in verses 9 and 10. Right? Remember, he said, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles. Because the night is not in him. He has just told his disciples, we're going to Bethany to see, to see really Lazarus, which is an interesting way he's going to put it. But he says that when we do that, of course, he doesn't say this, but immediately the disciples are going to realize we're going to go that road again. We're going to go on that road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Okay, We're going to see that the very danger, the very nature of that road, again, brings this point home in a very powerful way about the about the fact that you really need to be in the light in order to be safe and move forward to the end of your destination in life. But here in 
destination to to see Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So in other words, they would be picturing right now that road. When Jesus said, we're going, we're going to be on that road, but hey, there's 12 hours of daylight, right? We're going to be okay. As long as it's daytime, we'll be okay for us to be walking on that road from Jericho to Jerusalem. But we better not walk it at night because we're going to, because if you stumble at night, you're in big trouble on that road. Now to get this point, all right, so again, the point is, is that it's not only dangerous in, in the sense that the robbers are there and so forth. It's dangerous in this second way. The very nature of the road itself is a dangerous place to be. Now, to get this point across to everybody this morning in a more dramatic fashion, okay, I'm going to next show a brief video. I don't do this much, but I'm going to do it this morning. Okay. I practice the technology. You've got things all set up. Mark's been looking over my shoulder this morning. So it should work. Right. Those of you. Well, right. Those of you on Skype. All right. I just if you can't hear it. All right. Then let us know. I don't know how you're going to let us know. Mark, how comment on the chat room. Right. Okay. And we'll try to make sure you can hear it. By the way, if we can hear it, it's definitely on your end. But here we go. Yeah, I know. I have to wait for it to pop up. Yeah, well, yeah, here we go. Here it is. In this video, we examine the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Starting east of the Jordan River, let's follow the road from Jericho to Jerusalem on Map 19. The road brings us through the different districts of Jericho, including the residential area and municipal Jericho. Passing through municipal Jericho, the road begins climbing up the ascent of Adamim, a ridge on the south side of the deep Wadi Kilt Canyon. Continuing through the rocky Judean wilderness, the road descends into a canyon called Nahal Og, which acts like a moat guarding Jerusalem's eastern approach. The road climbs up another ridge, then over the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. This cross-section diagram shows the different segments of the route that travels from Jericho to Jerusalem. This is the route that Jesus took on his last journey up to Jerusalem. Note on the lower right-hand side of the screen, Jericho sits at 800 feet or 250 meters below sea level. Jesus would have passed through the different districts of Jericho. First, the residential area, and then about one and a half miles away was Municipal Jericho, built by the Hasmoneans and Herod the Great. From Municipal Jericho, the route climbs on a ridge called the Ascent of Adumim, or the Red Ascent, to a ridge crest where Roman and Crusader period forts guarded the road. From the forts, the road descends into a canyon called Nahal Og, and then continues up toward Jerusalem on a ridge where parts of the Roman road can still be seen today. It reaches the eastern shoulder of the Mount of Olives, then climbs over the top of the mountain. Finally, the road descends down into the Kidron Valley before ascending into the city of Jerusalem. 
The straight line distance between Jerusalem and Jericho is 14 miles or 22 kilometers. But there is an elevation difference of 3,300 feet or 1,000 meters. We start our journey back down near Jericho's strongest freshwater spring, which is covered by the long red-roofed building. Next to the spring sit the ruins of Old Testament period Jericho, conquered by Joshua. Ruins of the conquered Canaanite city have been exposed by modern archaeological excavation. From here we continue south or west to Herodian Municipal Jericho. This view from the south of the Jericho region shows the different districts of Jericho. Residential Jericho, including the main freshwater spring at the foot of the Old Testament period ruins. But also Municipal Jericho, built in the decades before Jesus by the Hasmoneans and Herodians. Residential Jericho was separated from Herodian Municipal Jericho by about one and a half miles or two kilometers. Knowing the district breakdown of ancient Jericho helps explain an apparent contradiction in the Gospels regarding the location of the healing of the blind man Bartimaeus. Matthew and Mark state that Jesus met Bartimaeus as Jesus was going out from Jericho, describing the healing from the perspective of residential Jericho. On the other hand, Luke describes the healing from the perspective of municipal Jericho, saying that Jesus was approaching Jericho. The healing would have taken place on a road between the Jericho districts. What at first glance looks like a contradiction between the Gospels is actually a careful recording of different eyewitness perspectives. After passing through Herodian municipal Jericho, the ruins are seen here, the road begins climbing the ascent of Adamim, the ridge on the south side of Wadi Kilt. At the beginning of the ascent, the road was guarded by Kipros, a fortress built by Herod the Great, situated on a high cone-shaped hill. Herod named the fortress in honor of his mother. Like the modern road seen here, the ancient road stayed on the ridge, avoiding the deep canyons of the Judean desert. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem comes through the rough terrain of the Judean desert. The Judean desert sits in the rain shadow of the hill country of Judah. Rain and vegetation disappear the further one descends east toward the Jordan Valley. The Judean desert is sparsely populated. Water, accessible only with difficulty, is from springs deep in the canyons. Mainly three types of peoples live here. The refugee or fugitive like David who fled from Saul, or the monks who built this monastery. Secondly, policemen or soldiers guarding the roads, but mainly the semi-nomadic shepherd with flocks of sheep and goats. The ascent of Adumim, or the red ascent, gets its name from the reddish color of some of the limestone along the route. Another suggestion is that the name comes from the amount of blood that has been shed on the route. We note here an example of the geographical detail and accuracy of the scriptures. The book of Joshua, chapter 15, verse 7, says that the border between the tribal allotments of Judah and Benjamin goes along the ascent of Adumim, which is south of the valley, meaning south of the Wadi Kilt. Benjamin's allotment is to the north, Judah is to the south. A little less than halfway between Jericho and Jerusalem, the Adumim ridge ends at a crest. Here, a series of ancient forts strategically guarded the road. At the Adamim Ridge Crest, the path of the ancient road joins the modern highway for a couple miles. The red-roofed building is a reconstructed Turkish inn, which today is a museum for Samaritan artifacts. 
the Good Samaritan helped the man along the Jerusalem to Jericho route. Beyond the Adamim Ridge crest, the road must descend into the Og Canyon. In the distant horizon, beyond the Og Depression, towers on the Mount of Olives are visible. Here, the modern highway starts its way up out of the Og Canyon. In addition to the steep descent and barrenness of the entire Judean desert, the depth of the Og Canyon makes direct approach to Jerusalem very difficult. The Israelite prophets of Jerusalem, like Isaiah, were familiar with this desert terrain. Winter rains cause grass and flowers, like peoples and nations, to temporarily flourish. We're in the Judean wilderness, east of Jerusalem. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Isaiah also says to prepare for the coming of the Lord, like preparing a road for a king coming through the desert. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The modern highway continues the climb out of the Og Canyon. Vegetation and human settlement now appear. The three towers on the Mount of Olives are visible. Like all travelers from Jericho, we keep an eye on the Mount of Olives, knowing that Jerusalem is just on the other side. The Roman road did not ascend from the Og Canyon where the modern road does. Cuttings and remnants of the Roman road can be seen on this ridge. The Mount of Olives is on the horizon to the west. We're standing on a section of the Roman road that went from Jerusalem higher up in the hills through the Judean desert to Jericho. This is the road where the Good Samaritan helped a man who had fallen among thieves. Now we have arrived at the eastern shoulder of the Mount of Olives. Here is relatively flatter ground with human settlement and where roads maneuver more freely. Note the modern roads that travel along the shoulder from north to south. One of the main biblical towns on the shoulder was Bahurim, whose ruins might be on this hill. Another possibility is that Bahurim was located where this modern town is, since it sits exactly where the road from Jericho reaches the shoulder. As seen on map 5-5, when David fled Jerusalem during Absalom's revolt, he came over the Mount of Olives and passed by Bahurim. At Bahurim, a Benjamite named Shimei came out and cursed David. Also, two spies that David left behind departed from Jerusalem and hid in a cistern in Bahurim before joining David further east near the Jordan River. David then forded the Jordan River and made his way into Gilead. From Bahurim, one could take the steep ascent straight over the Mount of Olives. However, a route to Jerusalem's city of David ascended the Mount of Olives slightly to the south. Jesus was on this route, as in his days it led to the town of Bethany, the home of Lazarus. Bethany and another town, Bethphagi, sit on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Marked on map 9-8 are a couple of occasions when Jesus traveled on the Jericho to Jerusalem route. Following an episode at Hanukkah in Jerusalem, Jesus spent time in the district of Perea, beyond the Jordan. After hearing about the sickness of Lazarus, he stayed two days longer and then climbed the Jericho to Jerusalem road to Bethany, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Several weeks later, Jesus made his last journey to Jerusalem. He traveled south in the Jordan Rift Valley and came to Jericho, where he healed the blind man Bartimaeus and then met the tax collector Zacchaeus in municipal Jericho. Then he climbed up the Jericho to Jerusalem road, again to Bethany, where he had a supper in the home of Simon the leper. Later, Jesus rode a donkey from Bethphagi over the summit of the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. 
From Bethany and Bethphagi, we now climb to the summit of the Mount of Olives. It was from Bethphagi that Jesus rode on a donkey as the designated king, the son of David, into his city, Jerusalem. At the fork in the modern road, Jesus would have followed the path to the left. The long journey from Jericho is coming to an end. A healthy person could walk the Jericho-Jerusalem road in eight to nine hours. At the summit of the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount come into view. Finally, the road goes down into and then up out of the Kidron Valley, which separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. We're just uh, on our way to Jerusalem and uh, take a little break right now. I think we're about to go on the, see some parts of the Roman road and Mount of Olives. More or less, man, Jesus did some work to come to die. Well, the last nine hours we've been trekking. We started Jericho up the Saint Badamim. <laughs> we hitched up with the Roman road and we finally made it to the city walls of Jerusalem. So again, I hope this gives you a better understanding, a better sense, a better feel for what this road was like to travel back in then. And even today, note that they, how long it took them to get from Jericho to Jerusalem. Anyone hear that? Remember that? Eight to nine hours. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Eight to nine hours. What is Jesus telling the disciples in verses nine and ten? Are there not 12 hours in a day? Okay. Keep that in mind. So yeah, so this was a dangerous and difficult road, and uh, go back now to John chapter eleven, verse seven, please. So we're going to close and then get to the Lord's Supper. John chapter eleven, verse seven through ten. Let us go to Judea again along that dangerous and difficult road that leads from Jericho to Jerusalem. Are there not a rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And the last place anyone would want to be caught walking at night was along that road from Jericho to Jerusalem. If you were unfortunate enough to stumble and fall on that road at night, you might very well have fallen to your death. <laughs> so now just one thing about the 12 hours. OK, back then, the Romans and the Jews divided the time between sunrise and sunset into 12 equal periods or what they called hours. It wasn't a, always a 60-minute hour. Sometimes it was more because it, during the year, you know, the, the, the number of hours of sunlight varies from about 10 hours in December to about 14 hours in June. And, and uh, it was probably February or March 
when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Why do we say that? Because remember, he had come from what we now call Hanukkah when he was in Jerusalem. And then there was some time that passed. And then he left and he went to Bethany beyond the Jordan and he spent some time there. And then he then he says, I'm going to go back to Judea. So it was February or March when he actually was would make this trip to go heal, raise Lazarus from the dead. So at that period of time, the 12 hours in a day, okay, that means equal pieces, was probably about 11 hours, okay, in our 60-minute period. I was going to talk about this, but we don't have time this morning. Or maybe I'll just talk about it a little bit, um, just quickly. So this is really cool, so I'm going to show this to you. Okay, what we have here is, is something called, it was a sundial, but it's a special sundial because it's three-dimensional. Right, this was this is this is not just a semicircle. It's a hemisphere. There's depth to it here. And what makes that so great is that the way that this works is that the sun, all right, in the in the shortest day of the year, would pass this way. Okay. Now you can divide that into twelve hours. Okay. But really, it's probably more like you know fifty minutes hours here. Then what we call the equinox, day and night are the same. That would be here. Okay, there's about 12 hours. And then here, longest day of the year, June 21st, you got 14 hours. Either way, they're always broken into 12 periods, but they're not always 60-minute well, periods that we think of. So, again, it was February or March when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. There were probably around 11 hours of what we consider 60-minute hours of sunlight then between sunrise and sunset, 11 hours. How long does it take to cross from Jericho to Jerusalem if you're healthy and walking? Eight to nine hours. How many hours of sunlight did the disciples of Jesus have at that time? Eleven, maybe, probably eleven. So remember, why did it take eight hours? Well, remember, it was like less than 50, 20 miles. At that, at that period of time, anybody who was healthy could probably walk four miles an hour. So you might do the math and say, it's only going to take four hours, except... You're climbing a mountain. How many people have ever climbed a mountain? All right. So you know it's a different thing to climb up a mountain than it is to just walk along. A, so that's why it took eight hours. Now, also, um, let me show you the map of, of the journey one more time, if I can get back there in a, in a efficient manner. Yeah. So this is Jericho, though. Okay. This is an eight-hour trip. But where do they start? Bethany beyond the Jordan. There's a little more time. In fact, it's probably another two hours, one hour anyway, to go from, this was flat land, but it was still probably about eight miles or so. So it's probably about two hours more. So let's see, what's two plus eight? Ten. What's two plus nine? Eleven. So do they have enough time to get there if they keep a good pace? Yeah, right? So they could, but not a lot. Right. I mean, they they would spend most, if not all, of the time from sunrise to sunset in March going from Bethany beyond the Jordan all the way to Jerusalem or Bethany. I just wanted to just get get that implanted in your head. What he's saying is this trip they're going to take is going to take all the hours from sunrise to sunset at that time of the year. Okay, all the hours of sun in a day. So that's the picture they had. And so when he they understood that um, that's a limited amount of time. It's just about enough time to make to make the journey to get to where we're going. 
Okay, so that, when you think about it that way, I think it adds more meaning to what he's telling the disciples. So again, if you start early in the morning, you would arrive in Jerusalem just before sunset. If you made good time, you didn't get sidetracked. If you started late, you would still be on the road when darkness fell. Light and darkness. We've seen these 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 uh, references several times in in the Gospel of John, right? In the very beginning, right? The word was was life, and the life was the light of men. Chapter one, chapter three, he talks about the fact that some Jesus said some men prefer the darkness to the light. Chapter eight, he says, "I am the light of the world." Chapter nine, he says, "We must do our work while it is day, for night is coming when we can do no work." Here, he talks about the fact that there are twelve hours in the day. Okay, now we're going to we'll see as we go forward, as he gets closer and closer. To Jerusalem to his destiny he's going to talk about darkness and light a couple of more times so he's going to add some some metaphor he's going to add to what he's illustrating about himself and about the plan and about other people there are so many do- hours of daylight and they will come to the last hour Jesus keeps talking about that last hour and after that last hour it'll be night from birth these things, light and darkness, daylight hours, the last hour of the day, nightfall, they've been fundamental to our lives. They're like elementary things. They're simple, basic, but essential. They're like breathing, like a heartbeat, like tears. Jesus uses these simple things, light and darkness, the last hour, nightfall, to illuminate the most profound, profound things of all. They answer the most important questions of all. Questions about who he is. I am the light of the world. Questions about the works of God. We must work while the day is, while the sun is here, while the light is here. About good and evil, life and death, judgment and eternity. In the skillful hands of Jesus, these everyday obvious things tell the story of his very identity, his father's work, and the fate of every human being. And we'll see more of this next time. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the richness of it. We thank you for the majesty of the miracles of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he did raise Lazarus from the dead, that things don't end in death, but there is more on the other side of death that gives glory to you and to the Lord Jesus Christ for those who believe. And Father, we also know that this is ultimately pointing to the death and resurrection of your son, which is very appropriate as we begin together to celebrate the Lord's Supper now. We ask that you would have the Holy Spirit guide us, that we would be alert, that we would add depth to our understanding of the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. If you would, please uh, prepare your communion elements. Again, simple, everyday things we've known about since we were little kids, bread in, in the cup, wine, grape juice. And yet we're about to see how the Lord has shown us the most profound things through these very simple communion elements.
you know, 360 degrees and taking the lid off a cup. And if you tilt it too much, you will spill what's inside. All right. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. As long as he didn't, he didn't leave, right? He's coming no, back. No, no. Okay, sure. We will wait. We can think about Jesus traveling along that road from Jericho to to Jerusalem now, and as no, the maybe the disciples, maybe the, they were afraid for their lives again, or maybe they just didn't want to. Right, exactly, exactly. I think three. You know, um, it's interesting. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they only record one. Yeah, well, that's because they were they talked about his ministry up north in Galilee. It's really John that records the most trips. To, I think I'll have to look, but I think there were three Passovers, if I, remember, if I have that correctly, where he probably would have, he may have come that way. A lot of times they would in Galilee. They would cut across to the Jordan Valley because it was a lot easier to come that way. And then you just have the one ascent at the end from, from Jericho up. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're not going to wait too much longer. Okay. All right, let's begin the Lord's Supper at this time, remembering, bringing into remembrance the death of the Lord. We saw this morning that Jesus said about the, the sickness of Lazarus, that it's not going to end in death, but for the glory of God. We saw that afterwards he said that he was going to head back to Judea again, even though, as the disciples pointed out to him, what awaited him in Judea were the enemies that wanted to kill him. So when Jesus decided to head to Judea, you know what? The disciples were right because he was basically signing his own death warrant by coming back. The miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead prompted a great revival, if it were, of the common people in Judea. And that was the thing that, that put the, the leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees over the edge, lit the con congregation conflagration of their anger. It exploded. And now he had to die. In other words, giving life to his friend Lazarus meant ultimately giving up his own life. And by so doing, he modeled the very words that he spoke to the disciples in the upper room on the night before he died on the cross. He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. His death and burial produced a great harvest of life, eternal life. And that's why in chapter 12, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the great meaning of the death of Christ. He died so that we might live. So if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And this is what we bring into remembrance each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We proclaim his death until he comes again. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you, we, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we we ask that you, every time we come to a passage in your word that talks about the death of your son, that we would stop and reflect on all he accomplished through that death for us, for you, for everything, for the whole world. That We, we just uh, are in awe of him and what he did by dying for us. We also thank you, Father, that you have recorded these things in your word so that we can turn to them again and again and again and again and again. We ask that you would allow us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, Bible study Thursday, you know the drill, 6.30. Um, I want to just this morning uh, practice the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay, because we need to have it clear and ready to, to give to anybody who comes in our path that's looking for a reason for the hope that we have. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that every human being is a sinner by birth, and that God sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to die for the sin of the world. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that your sins and my sins and the sins of everybody in the world might be forgiven. He died and then he was buried. He was that grain of wheat that was that was put into the ground. And then God says, I, ra- I raised him from the dead on the third day. That's the good news. That's the simplicity of it. Jesus' death for our sins, his burial, and his being raised from the dead by his father. Whoever simply believes in these facts about Jesus Christ, believes in who Jesus is as their savior, understand that they put aside all their works, everything that they could possibly do to earn the favor of God goes away. And what's left is the cross of Christ. And to believe in the death of Christ for their sins, to believe in the resurrection of Christ for their justification is to be saved eternally and to have eternal life. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's make sure that we communicate it as clearly as we can. And of course, the spirit will help us with that. But it is our 
our job, as it were, our privilege, as it were, to be so intimately familiar with the basics, the center of, of what it means to be a Christian in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, once again, we just want to thank you. And at this time, we want to thank you that we do get to gather together and to proclaim this, the death of your son and that you've given us the privilege to be those who would go out and be able to let other people know about the good news about your son. So we thank you for those privileges and gifts. And we ask, Father, that we would be motivated to share these things with those who are in desperate need of knowing the truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. And with that, you're dismissed. Enjoy this day. Happy Fourth of July to those of us who are in the United States. I say that because we do get people from other countries that, that join us. So Americans, happy Fourth of July.